0: Okay, so, this is episode 11 of Echo Chamber It's the penultimate day of the London Film Festival And we have some films for you We've got A Private War, Benjamin If Bill Street Could Talk and Hate You Give um, With If Bill Street and I Hate You Give We've got a Q&A That will be played after each of the reviews Um, this was, both of those were premieres So, enjoy And, um, yeah Let's get to it So the first film of today Was A Private War Um, this was from director Matthew Heineman. It's um, produced by Basil Iwanick, Marissa McCann, Matthew George, Matthew Heineman, and Charlie's Ferron. Uh, it's written by Arish Amel, and it's starring Rosamund Pike, Jamie Dorman, Stanley Tukey. Tuki and Tom Hollander. It's 106 minutes, and it's from Averyon Pictures. Um, the the breakdown is sharp-minded Maria, um, who's played by Rosamund Pike, had a fearless approach to capturing human stories in war zones. Widely recognised by the eye patch, she insequently sported the result of a grenade attack during an interview with Tamil Tiger rebels. Marie was a striking figure in London culture circles in the 2000s, as much at home with a martini at a party as she was confronting Mama Gandhi, uh, Gaddafi, Mama Gaddafi, in an interview shortly before his death. Aided by resplendent, visceral cinematography by Robert Richardson, he um, also did The Hateful Eight, and an elegantly adapted by Aresh Amel from Maria. Brenner's Vanity Fair article, Maria Colvin's Private War, Oscar-nominated Heinemann has created a devastatingly portrait of complex, brilliant woman. In every scene, Pike fiercely inhabits Colvin, occasionally arrogant but also deeply compassionate and committed, who who sacrificed her own safety and happiness to bear witness to the very human cost of armed conflict, to people who have no voice. So, if you don't know, this is a, um, a film about Maria Colvin. Who was an actual war correspondent? Um, you know, uh, I I remember some of the stuff from um, yeah from when I was growing up. You know, you used to hear a lot about Kate Aidy as well, who is um has a small little recurring. Role in this Not really speaking but you see her She's referred to You know just by Kate But yeah you kind of know Who it is Um, This is It's a really Interesting But tough film To watch I think More for just when you're looking and putting a magnifying glass on atrocities that happen around the world it really makes you think you know it 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 has that weird effect on you um where you question the morality and humanity of just what we do you know how we see things how we view things how we talk about things how we how we project them you know because everything is tinged everything is gets slightly biased by certain opinions and agendas and it takes a certain person to Go into the eye of the tiger And and give you just the raw facts And that's what Maria Colvin did So yeah, this is a tough one But I think it's something that I think it needs to be seen I think people would have a different understanding On... News on information on just corresponding the facts. If they saw this, like we start off with um, her in Homs, Syria, and then the camera kind of pans out, and you see all these kind of broken, dilapidated. You know destroyed buildings And then we jump back So we jump 11 years Back in time And essentially the film Then moves forward from that Point So we jump 11 years back To London And then from that point onwards The film moves forward to different um, Time periods And Places where Marie went And covered News and war So it was An interesting way in which This film is um, Is covered Um, And I think it's three years later she goes to Sri Lanka And when she's in Sri Lanka She's talking with the Tamil Tigers And it was an incident here where she got her infamous eye patch. Um, like the one, you know, uh, something you kind of get from this is the nightmares that are with her constantly. You know, just the fear, the flashback she has to war scenes and death and atrocities. And that must just be so horrific, so tough. Yeah, it, it's funny. There's um, a lot that, yeah, she kind of talks about, like her friends are worried she has PTSD. So we're seeing her kind of deal with this. Like she admits that she hates being in a war zone. But feels compelled to see things for herself Like, um, she says that, you know, this is the rough draft of history Which I think, you know, is interesting There's a really, I think there's, like the camera work in this film You get some great scenes, some great coverage You know, some really good angles of, like, war Uh, And there's one amazing cutscene And it's her having sex And it's not like a close-up or anything like that But it's in the dark So it's kind of silhouetted And so it's a cut between her having sex And then her lying on her bed writing um, this story out But with this frenzied energy And so, you know, you're cutting from writing with this frenzied energy To then this kind of sensual but still frenzied sex And I think it was just done really well You know, Um, another kind of thing that was said is uh, in, um, In covering can you really make A difference The real uh, Chivalry Is having faith That humanity will pay attention When they see it Um, Yeah Which is you know And then also I feel we failed If we don't face What war does If we don't face the human horror It's like, just these poignant moments in the film Where she candidly just, you know, pulls the plaster off And you just, you know, get this insight Into how she sees things Like, and yeah, she wants to quit There's definitely moments in the film Where you get the sense that you know, she's had it, she wants to finish doing this stuff But she just can't You know, another war breaks out And she feels she needs to be the voice for people And at the end, there's just this Really powerful broadcast that she does from the war scene Just really powerful And you know, thing. You know, it's the end is coming. You know, we we think that maybe it's gonna be this blaze of glory, that it's gonna be this heroic moment, this sacrifice, but it's not. It's just death, man. It's just death, and that I think is. Just makes it harder. You know. Because it's just like. Ugh. If, if only. You know. If only these things didn't happen. Maybe she would have got out. Maybe she would have survived. Yeah. It's. um, It's something that needs to be seen. I feel. It's a really good film. Some. Incredible performances Really good performances So The next time it's showing As part of the festival Is Sunday the 21st So that's the last day tomorrow And that's at 12pm If you If you hurry There may be tickets left But I feel this one Is probably going to be packed but, um, I, you know, I feel that A Private War will be playing You will get an opportunity to see it And if you do, grab that opportunity A film that I was hoping to see yesterday, but I didn't I was able to see today So I just went on the fly, managed to get some rush tickets And I, I went to see Benjamin This is directed and written by Simon Anstall. It's produced by Dominic Dromgul, Alexandra Breed, and Louise Simpson. And it's starring Colin Morgan, Fenix Brzed, and Jules Fry. It's 85 minutes and it's from Signature Entertainment. And this is what it's about. The clue is in the film within the film's title, No Self. It's perhaps no surprise that the imminent release of Benjamin's sophomore feature plunges him into existential crisis. In this heightened state of insecurity, even meeting his potential dream match, young French musician Noah, doesn't soothe Benjamin's fears and self-loathing. And that's before he is to screen his film to the merciless audiences of the BFI London Film Festival. Amstel is working in a low-key, intimate vein here, exposing the contradictions of a London-centric creative culture whilst adjointly balancing drama and comedy. If it's less suggestively autobiographical than his TV series Grandma's House... Colin Morgan makes an endearing doppelganger here. It's also more cinematic and shows Amstel's growing confidence as a skilled and nuanced filmmaker. Like, this is an interesting film. I have to say, at first, I was worried. I was concerned that it would possibly be... A bit twee, a bit meh, you know, just standard, just run of the mill kind of fare. But I was happily surprised that, like, as the film went on, it found its feet and voice and became this just interesting look at someone's struggle to find... Their voice to find who they are You know and that's Essentially what this is It's interesting the way it opens Because You have um, Like two guys breaking Up but But then It kind of pans out And what we're Watching Is Benjamin's film So it's the film Within the film so that was, like, an interesting way to start. Because the conversation these guys are having, it was just a bit like, oh, this is odd. <laughs> what, 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 have I, what have I stepped into here? Uh, yeah, so you see this. But, yeah, like, Benjamin throughout, like, especially in the beginning, is, like, doubting everything. Like, doubting his work. He's, like, re... Looking and reviewing this film over and over and over again, even just before it's meant to like be done with, you know, um, and he's just reviewing it, reviewing it. And a funny thing is, like in the film, we we're, we're told that there's this recurring monk and what Benjamin seems to do to try and soothe his anxieties and fears uh, is watch YouTube videos about like these, um, Buddhist monks talking their philosophies. So it's a bit, um, yeah, a little ironic, but, um, yeah, he, he's trying to find, I think that missing thing. In his life He wants to be in a relationship He wants to have love But He can't relax into it And that's the big problem But then what we see is When he's able to relax When he forces himself to go Look, this is what I need And this is what I'm going to do He feels better like this is the person he's meant to be but it's just a case of can he stick with this you know is he going to allow himself to have this happiness and i i think it takes a moment with his friend That he, you know, he's very fearful that something has happened And I think this moment helps him see that, that what he really wants has been in front of him all this time And he just hasn't had... The courage or confidence just to grab it with both hands and not let go. So then we see him do this and make that attempt. And uh, yeah, it's just that question of, um, you know, is he now able to go through life without constantly questioning who he is and if he's doing things right and will people like him and you know just a, that continuous chatter that often plays around in your head you know but yeah this is it's a nice film from Anstol it's interesting so uh, yeah, if you, I definitely would say if you get the opportunity, go see it It's screening uh, Sunday the 21st, so that's tomorrow at 8.50pm at the BFI South Bank um, It may be sold out, but if you go an hour to half an hour before the film starts There's always the possibility of getting a ticket So why not take that chance? Make it the last film you see in the festival and end it on a a fun note. Because I did laugh. I did laugh out loud, heartily, on a good few occasions in this film. So, um, yeah, it's something that, yeah, I think it will cheer you up. It will help you through... uh, Through the day. It's not just a sad look at someone struggling. So yeah. That's Benjamin people. So this evening. I went to see. um, The premiere of. If Bill Street could talk. Uh, This is. Only the third. Directorial effort from. Barry Jenkins. Um, It was produced by Adele Romanansky, Sarah Murphy, Barry Jenkins, Dead Gardner, uh, Jeremy Kilner, and Megan Elson. Uh, It was also written by Jenkins and it's starring Kiki Lane, Stefan James. Coleman Domingo Brian Tree Henry And Regina King It's 190 minutes And it's from Entertainment One And uh, yeah, this is the breakdown Love is what brought you here And if you trusted it this far Trust it all the way Tish And uh, Fonny have known each other since childhood, but only lately discovered that the safe, easy familiarity between them has bloomed into a love so intoxicating it promises everlasting joy and happiness. But life is not destined to be so easy for a young black couple, living in 1970s Harlem Fonny is falsely accused of a rape and an unjust judicial system refuses to acknowledge the impossibility of his having committed this crime Tish and her family struggle to extricate him This is only the second time a book by James Baldwin has been adapted for the screen um, the other time it was a French version in 1998. In adapting Bill Street, Jenkins creates an authentic and graceful film about black lives in America. Like a missing piece of cinema history for people being denied representation on screen. And with cinematographer James Laxton, who uh, worked with... um Jenkins on Moonlight and designer Mark Friedberg. He has crafted a ravishing world. The lushness of the film's images interacts beautifully with its spoken text, capturing the poetry of Baldwin's language. Fonny and Tish's story asserts that even in a world of corruption and prejudice Love and dignity can prevail um, Like this film opens with a really nice tracking shot Of Fonny and Trish walking in the park um, Along these uh, a walkway and up and down steps And it like just follows them in such a way That it's just really nice and the hues that we're seeing like the filters really help shine the light on their love, you know it it's um yeah we 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 see this spark between the two of them
1: <coughs>
0: it's um it's something you know. When you see, I think when you see like true affection, true adoration, true love captured, it's uh, yeah, it's such a nice thing to see, and we really believe this from Tish and Fonny. There's a bit where they're dancing and I think it's the movement It's the You know, it's the sound Like everything comes together And then along with them talking with each other It's this It's this poetic moment That's so sensual So giving It really Yeah, I think It shows their love in such a way that you understand that even with hurdles, nothing could get in between these two. You know, and I think that's an important part of this film the unbreakability of their bond. And so having this moment. That solidifies them And that Really helps show The couple that they are uh, <clears throat> And as Jenkins said that You can see like, The different filters that have been used here You can see that When it comes to them It's a brighter feel And then When we get to some of the darker moments of the film It is a more sedate Kind of feel with the lighting and everything But it's one of those stories That we kind of know this story You know, whether you've read about it um, In history books Or you've read other kind of f- Fiction from this period You know That this happens Like maybe you've seen films That are set around this time And you know that this thing happens But what makes it unique Is um, I think Jenkins' voice It is The love between Trish and Fonny You know, these are things that make this film stand on its own You know, that elevate the film So it's not just a rehash It's something else You know, it is It is something that resonates with you And I think... When we're looking at the moment At how society is How, you know, oppressive some cultures are You know, the fact that people don't get freedom People don't get the opportunity to express themselves People don't get the opportunity to love I think this this film it resonates because of those reasons and look you I wouldn't compare it to moonlight as a film because they're completely different subjects but what you can see in both of those films is the recurring music that is used to build kind of feelings and emotions it's the quality of the production the care in bringing a story to life it's the direction it's the cinematography All of these things ring true between both films Even though, look, they're different stories They're different entities But they both are extremely well done They're both quality productions And they're both things that, yeah, should be seen Uh, And the next time you possibly could see this is Sunday the 21st at 11am, that's at the Embankment Garden Cinema and then it's showing also Sunday the 21st at 6pm at the Picture House Central, I think both of these screens might be sold out but look, I've said it once, I'll say it again if you arrive half an hour to an hour early there is always a possibility of tickets being made available that you pick up a return ticket so if you're in the area i would definitely give it a, a give it a try because yeah it's a it's a very nice film so that's if bill street could talk
2: who needs no money <laughs> and uh, Jeremy Klein or D.D. Gardner from Plan B Nicholas our composer Caitlin Sullivan who plays lead Cello in the score on this film Man Moonlight and Sarah Murphy from my production company Pastel Thank you. Thank
1: you.
3: so for you so the germ of this film predates Moonlight um, I wondered like, what was your first encounter with the, with the book with James Baldwin's amazing novel
2: uh, a friend of mine who works in film, actually a sound designer who did work on uh, Night Moves and Ballast, a woman named Julia Schirar, uh sent me this book and said, hey, you should read this. Um, I think there's a film in it, and I think you'd be the perfect director uh, to direct it. And that was after only having seen Medicine for Melancholy. Uh, people say that to me all the time. I mean, if, if any filmmakers in the audience, your grandmas, your aunts say that to you all the time. And uh, it usually goes in one ear not the other, but because it was Julia, I listened. Uh, and when I read the book, I saw that she was right. Um, it's kind of like James Baldwin writing an episode of Law and Order, but the only way that James Baldwin could do it. So um, I kind of fell
3: in love with the with the book and thought we should adapt it. Some some filmmakers kind of take a book and adapt it and, and, and sort of own, I guess, take ownership of it, but talking to you, it sounds very much like James Baldwin's kind of the silent partner in the movie almost um, for you. Is
2: that fair? Yeah, I think that's fair. Uh, Mr. Baldwin has never been adapted in the English language. He's only been adapted once, and so I felt like it was it came upon me to bring uh, the novel into the world as uh, a visual story, but, but intact. You know, I wanted uh, a very faithful adaptation,
3: but something that could still uh, harness spot my voice and his. Um, Colman, I have to ask you about your scenes with Regina King, who is also amazing in this movie. Um, you guys have an incredible kind of on-screen chemistry, some slow dancing, and, and I just love the scene where you're kind of sitting on the table, the, the, the Hennessy comes out. Can you just share some memories of doing that particular scene and working with Regina? First of all, when I heard that
4: Regina King was playing my wife, I thought that I hit the jackpot. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, I'm, I'm good, and all I have to do is hopefully get as much knowledge under my skin and in my mind and all of James Baldwin's language within me, and then be open to playing with Regina. So the moment Regina and I met, which was at, um, at uh, uh, the table read, We just, um, we were husband and wife. There was no questions. There was no, how are we gonna do this? How are we gonna dance? And then this man left space for us. Like you said, that slow dance, he left space for us. So we were just in that mood, in that melancholy, loving, sexy mood. And this man would capture it because we were just being. So it's one of those films where you were allowed to just be. You had all the knowledge, all the research, everything you, you know, photography and images, you name it, and then you just allowed yourself
3: to uh, let spirit take over, and that's what I think Regina and I did together. Yeah, definitely. I'm, I'm always desperate to know what you're drinking when you get out the Hennessy bottle. Is that, what is that, tea? Is that <laughs> Hennessy? It's, it's
2: like apple juice, so watered down. But, like but I actually have a Hennessy from the Hennessy bottle, like we actually went out and found a real bottle in 1954. Wow. And I have it at home. it's just called Hiddy, it's labeled on
3: the bottle. Yeah. It's very nice. Dee <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, Dee and, and, and the guys, I just wondered uh, what the kind of the challenges were for you in recreating this incredibly sort of evocative um, uh, of Harlem in the 70s. Um, what, what were the challenges of filming, filming it in New York? What are New Yorkers like when they're kind of like passing by a film set, and they see Barry Jenkins at work?
5: Uh, I think we have to credit our incredible production designer mark freeberg who really uh, was a sort of a student of the period and he committed himself completely to creating these spaces actually a number of the spaces are interiors the apartment uh, um, a lot you know some of the Harlem of that time doesn't exist anymore and I think he did an incredible job but you know that was all under Barry's direction um, and uh, as far as the, the set, um, you know, Barry's one of the most remarkable people to watch uh, working. And, you know, we were filming at 180, uh, 138th and Edgecombe for, uh, for the apartment and like, I remember being there and being in Riverside Park the morning of the opening shot of the film where you see Tish and Fani walking down and there was a, lo- a lovely feeling of being in New York, um, even though we're in 2018 which kind of expresses the like period, non-period nature of the film generally, which shot. Uh, yeah.
3: Nick, a question for Nicholas, I just wondered in terms of, in terms of writing the score, um, and, and Caitlin obviously played the cello part, the incredible cello motif. Yay Caitlin. <laughs> Beautiful, beautiful school, As as was Moonlight. Um, I I wondered what it sort of what your relationship with with Barry is like now. You've worked with him the second time. Is there kind of like an easy shorthand? You just exchange photo glances and <laughs> is there more how's it working for you too?
1: i feel really lucky to get the chance to collaborate with, with barry jenkins um i think from the very beginning you know I, I was thinking back on that first time that i met barry um uh before before he shot moonlight um and he said you know how, does, how should this work work how do we do this together and i said i think the key is we have to be in the same room together looking at the same things feeling the same things and um, what's amazing is when we do get into the studio together barry's so incredibly open to ideas that you just get this inspirational feeling that anything's possible and i think both of us don't really know where we're going to wind up with the music Uh, barry's first thing he said to me on uh, if bill street could talk was Uh, Brass, He said horns. He was hearing horns. And so I wrote a piece. And um, that piece, the the melody of that piece is actually something that you hear throughout the film. You hear the melody in the very beginning of the movie. um, And yet that version that I wrote of just horns playing it isn't in the movie uh, because we felt it was missing something. And actually what it was missing was it was missing strings. Um, And I feel very lucky to be able to be married to Caitlin and to work with (laughs) (laughs) Caitlin.
3: I'm going to throw this uh, next question out to the audience. Um, a bit dazzled by the lights. I can't see if there's any hands in the air. Um, Shout just, out. Yeah, just right down the
2: That way. hey guys. Uh, thank you. Uh, I
3: just wanted
2: to ask Barry Jenkins. Uh, hello? Uh, Sorry, <laughs> 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 I just wanted to ask uh, you guys, uh, obviously Barry Jenkins, uh, as a writer, uh, as an African-American writer, uh, to another African American writer, James Baldwin, what does he mean to you, personally? Oh, he means means everything to me. I mean, at the point where James Baldwin came into my life, uh, he was recommended to me by a friend, um, and that friend told me I needed to read James Baldwin to expand my worldview, to expand my view on what manhood and masculinity meant and what was possible within the framework of those things. So I think reading Baldwin really opened up who I am as a person um, in a certain way, and to see someone who was from a place very similar to the place I was, who spoke to such a large experience, both within the Black community but I think within humanity at large, it was very inspiring. And I think it gave me the uh, the courage to go forth and try to find my own voice uh, and arts and live. So yeah, Baldwin's crucial And making this damn thing. was scary as hell, right? Because
3: how do you adapt your idol? You know, very cautiously is what I would say. Yeah. For people who are discovering Baldwin for the first time through the film and then maybe the book, is there another? But you put but yeah yeah.
2: I was told to read uh, the fire next time in Giovanni's room to start, and that was my starting point. And despite me starting uh, my adaptation with the bill street guitar, I think you should all start with the fire next time in Giovanni's room at the same damn time. All right, at the same damn time. <laughs> Are you
3: gonna talk about that as well? Somebody say something. I said I agree. Yeah. <laughs> Preach. Uh, question in the middle, I think. Hang on one second. Just wait for the mic to arrive with you one second. It's pretty loud.
1: Okay. <laughs> Shout it out and Congratulations. One of the most beautiful lines in the film, I, mean, I hope I can, it was Dave Franco's line about his mother and that's all that makes the difference. And I really appreciated that so much. That really added something very beautiful. Um, I thought the casting was remarkable start to finish, can you talk a little bit about that process and that creeping policeman yeah, yeah, that creepy policeman.
2: you don't have an English accent, but he's your countryman,
3: and <laughs> it's right, so
2: he's from y'all, man, y'all gave us that. Um, <laughs> he's also a very, a very, yeah, there you go, exactly. He's also a very lovely man, um, and it was very difficult for him to do this part. Uh, I mean, nobody, or very few people in the crew, and I'll just show respect to you, was as well-versed uh, in Baldwin as the guy who played uh, the cop. Um, and I think the people I was looking for in this film had two things, one, they loved Baldwin, but also, too, I was trying to build these families. So we cast Kiki and Stefan first. Then it was about building these families around Kiki and Stefan. Um, and with Kiki, uh, it kind of was similar to Moonlight, where the work was done partly in the casting. Kiki's very new to this process. And she's surrounded by Coleman Domingo, Regina King, Tiao Paris. And so you saw them nurturing her into this process, and that nurturing makes its way into the on screen dynamics between uh, the family and the film. Uh, thank you for that shout out on the Dave Franco line. Uh, because that character Levy is in the book, and it's a character that I didn't quite understand. And uh, the film we have has all these mothers in the film. You know, Regina is a mother to Kiki. You know, Auntie is a mother to Stefan. Um, and then even the one with Victoria Rogers, you know, is pregnant with a child, and Kiki, of course, is bringing a child into the world herself. And So there's a dynamic of mothers and our relationships to them, and I was trying to find a way to really connect Dave Franco's character to Kiki and Stefan. And even that apartment wasn't in the book. We went on a location scout, and I was like, this is not a real place. And our production designer, Mark Freiberg, was like, no, 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 this is what it was, trust me. But I just thought, what is a testament of love and someone walking you into a place that looks like shit, promising you I can make this into a home, and you go, yes. And so we added that to the scene. And then with Dave, it was about this idea with mothers. So it was actually one of the few lines that's not in the book. And it's a very faithful adaptation, but it just felt like Baldwin was speaking to all of us in a certain way to sort of access our common humanity. And we all came from a mother. And it was a hip hop line for somebody. And, uh, and I feel like Dave did too. And to me, it was about him really drawing a line between him and them. And, uh, and that is a difference that makes, that, that's what makes a difference between us and them. It's not black and white. It's those of us who are nurtured in the proper way. And those of us who are unfortunate to have the proper nurturing. So uh, that's why the line is there. And I love Dave. He did a great fucking job. And I'm glad you're shouting him out. Thank you, my dear.
3: Can we talk about his sandals? <laughs> we
2: can't talk about his sandals. Somebody was, was, was cracking jokes about his sandals, man. So, <laughs> look, I'm, I'm, I'm not a New Yorker, so everything I saw in the making of this film, I tried to put into the film. There's a scene where Kiki and are walking down the block and the camera pans over to kids jumping on a rusted car. It doesn't advance the narrative, nothing to do with the plot, but in our research, we found that kids, in this time period, were making playgrounds out of nothing. The city wouldn't come up to Harlem to remove mm-hmm. rustic cars, so they jumped on them. So we put it in a damn film. We went to locate, with Location Scout, this place, and the landlord was wearing sandals with socks. He was a Jewish dude. And I was like, Dave Franco's Jewish, we're gonna make him like this dude. So that's why he's wearing
3: socks. didn't <laughs> give me
2: shit about the socks. I'm like, you didn't, you didn't come to Location
3: Scout a thing, you know? Any more questions? Uh, oh, lots of hands going on. up. Um, one down the front row.
5: Uh, this question, uh, thank you very much. It was a very good uh, experience to see it in the very front line. I was um, gonna
2: say, yo, wow.
5: <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Um, uh, I just want to ask the director these questions. Um, a little comparison between Moonlight and this production, and although the both of them come from uh, semi-published and, and a fully published book, uh, what was the difficulties for you to, in this particular pro- project, uh, comparing with the Moonlight, that you struggled or you just say, oh, how am I going to go with that or yeah. find a way?
2: Uh, I mean, they, they kind of go hand in hand to me. So, uh, and, and honestly, after you win, uh, the Oscar shit gets real easy, so there weren't too many complications. <laughs> 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 yeah. Yeah. There might be like two scenes over the course of the whole two films where more than two people are ever in a room together having a conversation. So in this film, right away in the first 10 minutes, you got like 12 people in an actual living room having a conversation. And for me, that was by far the most difficult thing to do because as Coleman said, I like to give the actors space to be themselves and to play and be free. But it's really difficult when you have that many people who are that damn good to give them all the space. But somehow James and I found a way to keep the same aesthetic approach that we do without hindering work that these guys do. Um, so that was the only difficulty. You know, I thought I'd make uh, Bill Street before I made Moonlight, but I wrote it without having the rights so i had to take a back seat. Um, but I'm glad I made Moonlight first. I think a lot of things that we've learned on Moonlight, myself and James and Nick and Caitlin, uh, we applied to the making of this film, which actually made it a bit easier to make than the previous one.
3: Thank you. I think we've got time for one very last question. Um, is the lady here, third row,
2: I gotta get a question from somebody I don't know. Okay. Ask the question. Um,
4: sorry, congratulations on the film. And, um,
2: Thank you, Miss Murray. <laughs>
4: um, I really love how the film looks. Like, it has such a
5: warmth to it. And I was wondering um, what your collaboration process was like with your cinematographer, James Laxton, and how that collaboration has developed and progressed since your short films today.
2: Yeah, James Laxton, for those of you who don't know, is the cinematographer of this film and Moonlight, and my first feature. We went to film school together, so I met this guy over at Boddington's in his dorm room when we were like 20 years old. And we've been working together ever since. I think we've developed a a really strong second hand in working. Uh, And I think we've just gotten a lot more confidence in making the decisions that we do. This movie's presented in two by one, rather than 185 or 235, because we wanted to make a movie that was cinematic but still had, Um, still pay due respect to the portraiture of the period that was our main source of visual inspiration. And both Moonlight and this film are meant to be uh, a function of the consciousness of the main character. So Moonlight looks the way it does because Chiron feels the way he does. This film looks the way it does because Tish feels the way she does. And so she's suspended in this this time period, that's the roughest time period she's ever gonna go through in her life. So when she thinks back on these lovely times, these times with Bonnie, we thought those things should be really rich and lush and visual. Um, because I think despite the pain and suffering that black folks have experienced since the dawn of the fucking time, especially the dawn of America, uh, we still have joy, we still have given so much beauty to the world and we felt it was okay to pair that beauty, that lush romanticism uh, with the very bitter pill, the social injustice that Baldwin was talking about in this film. So. It was a really organic process, and then uh, Mark Freeberg, the production designer that Jeremy mentioned, would host these like salons during pre-pro, which we should not have done because we drank too much wine. We would sit around this table and drink wine and pass splashes around, and so the costume designer would give things, to the production designer, and the cinematographer, and we ended up like honing in on these like greens and yellows and and just these very gold saturated colors, very different than Moonlight, but again, it felt like it was filtered through Tish's voice and through the writing and syntax of Baldwin's words, so uh, we went with it.
3: That's why it was very colourful and beautiful. Did you? Did you? Did you? Yeah. Okay, thank you. Okay. Very last last question. Is there anyone sort of I can't bit dazzled by that light? Is there anyone? There's someone at the very back. Is there a mic-
2: Yeah, when I wrote the, the script, um, sometimes things just stick in your head. Uh, a friend of mine made a short documentary called Family Portrait back in like 2002, 2003. Uh, it was a documentary about uh, this, this time that Gordon Parks embedded with a family uh, in Harlem for Time magazine. And she found the family all these years later. And something about the images in uh, Mr. Parks' series really stuck with me. So the first montage was written to the screenplay just because I wanted this fucking image to be in my film. And Walden wrote this great sort of monologue about the children of our age. And once we put it in and made the film, I realized that the children of our age become the Fonnies by the third act of this film. And it felt like the movie, even though Fonnies' experience is singular, it's not unique. And so I wanted to rhyme the opening montage of photos featuring Mr. Gordon Parks' Howe uh, with these images of all these other black men and the situation that Fonnies is going through uh, in the film. And I don't know, at first I thought it was like aesthetically, I mean, are we honoring the aesthetic contract uh, of the script? But afterwards, you can kind of just make the decision to go with it. So that's how that happened. I want to embarrass somebody before we end this QA. I'm going to walk down here <laughs> next to Caitlin, because Caitlin played the cello in Moonlight and a Bill Free guitar. So this is the the sound of black male vulnerability. This is what it is right here. She plays the cello in Moonlight and a Bill look, you know, I when you talk about allyship. you know? I think Kaitlyn gets together, Caitlyn and Nick get together with me and the script and these actors, they take the energy and the spirit of what we're doing. And Nick said, how does this work best if you and I are in the same room? And we're right in that room, like Dave said, that's the only difference between us and them, you know? Once we commune, we can just make these beautiful things that speak in our voices. So thank you, my dear, for paying our time.
3: Thank you so much
2: for coming tonight, and uh, please put your hands
0: together. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Hey, from Matthew Smith, Tull of Frill, Tull of Thank you, guys. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Thank you. Thank you. So the last film of the day was um, The Hate You Give. This is from director George Tillman Jr. It's produced by Robert Tietel, George Tillman Jr., Marty Bowen and Wyak Godfrey. The screenplay is by Aubrey Wells and it's starring Amanda Stenberg, Regina Hall, Russell Hornsby, KJ Aper And common. It's 132 minutes and it's from 20th Century Fox. Uh, So the breakdown is adapted by Soul Food Director George Tillman Jr. from Angie Thomas's best selling Black Lives Matter inspired young adult novel. The Hate You Give is an expansive and electrifying hybrid of coming of age tropes and powerful social drama. It boasts a remarkably textured lead performance from Amanda Stenberg. Um, You know, you may have seen her in the Hunger Games as code switching star Carter who presents one face to family and friends in her predominantly black neighborhood but a different one to her white prep school classmates and boyfriend Chris and initially playing a like playing like a smart teen movie the film's effervescent flow is brutally disrupted when Star witnesses the fatal police shooting of her childhood friend Khalil. This shift in tone is multi-layered as Tillman and screenwriter Aubrey Wells go beyond the facts of a fictional yet all too familiar case to consider the human cost behind blazing headlines, Steinberg's reluctant traumatised heroine is supported by a richly talented adult cast, notably Russell Hornsby as her politicised father Maverick and Regina Hall as pragmatic mother Lisa. Ancillary and divergent array of community standpoints, we see Insecure creator Isa Ray as an activist, lawyer, and common as a cop who's also Star's uncle. There's um, a couple of kind of ways I can look at this film. I think one, it's, you know, it's a. Uh, yeah, it's an okay film Look, we've got some really good performances Like the, uh, I think the story flows It's an understandable narrative, you know Um, Tonally, yeah, I think tonally it's pretty sharp um, it it gives the viewer what's needed for them to stick with what's going on, stick with the emotional ride of the tale. You know, I uh, yeah, I think it does that, and um, yeah, it's an okay story. You know, it's it like we've seen it before. It's it's nothing particularly new, but it's handled. Handled okay Um, The film The film really Lays everything out With the way it starts Because you have Star and her brothers Being Taught what to do If They're stopped by the police So straight away You know You're understanding Okay so We're living in this world where Black people Are up against it And also It's saying There's going to be a point in the film Where this is important So pay attention so, So we get that straight out the bat And Also With the names of the with the kids You understand that Yes, there's going to be There's going to be that Weird um, situation Where they intersect the uh, Another world And will have to kind of choose How they're perceived So we're, we're, we get this From the very beginning of the film Like you know You understand What this is And how it's going to be I think An issue though For me Is um, There's a lot of signposted Instances within the film like there's stuff that's set up Just to create a polar opposite situation Like having star at an all-white school And then cutting and showing her At a house party That's all black You know, you, you've created these two polar opposite situation straight out the gate and you're 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 forcing this kind of narrative you know then when you know she's driving with Khalil there's certain things that are getting said that it's just like okay so we we are setting things up in a particular way that's getting a bit I'd, I'd say telegraphed You know, a lot of the stuff Was telegraph For me Which uh, Yeah It just becomes a bit Because You know, you, you have saw always talking about The difference of going to this school And the fact that she Can't be herself at all And blah 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 And I'm just like, look I have been to that school You know it, Like I grew up in a neighbourhood Where there was Three black people at the school um, And the, Not including myself And two of those others Were my brother and sister You know what I mean So there wasn't any diversity But you're trying to Yeah you have to be Different to how you may normally be But the thing being You don't You're not completely different And so With th- with this They're saying She has to be Completely different And that's the thing I'm just like Look You're creating this situation Where someone is Saying they have to be A complete Polar opposite To themselves And that isn't necessarily the case But the film sets it up like that So it has these two frictionless situations And it can counterbalance off of those And it's just, you know it, 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 So it creates this thing It's like when Star's giving the evidence If you think about it Drugs don't even have to get mentioned They don't It could have been avoided That whole bit Could have been avoided But it's not But then that creates friction With the drug gang You see So it's a bit like Well That didn't have to be there at all But by putting it there You then create this new path That the film can go down So, yeah Like the other part of me It's seeing all these signposts here It's seeing all these false situations And that uh, You know, that kind of... Great on me a bit uh, I, I think A lot of the performances Were good Some of the performances I found A bit odd Like Common Came off a little Rigid You know he, His dialect And flow Seemed very disjointed Here and there didn't really seem a reason why, so that was a bit odd, you know. And then um, I think T.J. Wright, who played Sicani, he was didn't always seem to hit that emotional level, so he he's character seemed a bit he was kind of apart from the others because he just wasn't hitting that that, that, that range you know uh, so it all got a bit yeah not the best but you know look as I said I'm I can look at this in two ways. So the first way, it's a, it's an okay, adequate film. But my other side, it's seeing these issues. But you see, the funny thing is, you know, I was talking with my friend after the film about like the school situation and things like that. Her school was so much more diverse. So. You know, it certain things resonate differently with other people. So this is the thing. It, I'm not even saying this is a terrible film because everyone else in the room loved it. Everyone else, you know, appreciated it for for just what it was on the on the one level. You know, so I think situations can play into the perceptions that you have of these sort of things so you know i'm going to strip away my biases you know of this because i understand look these are things that affected me growing up so i ca- can't Taint the film with that So yeah I'm saying that You know this is An okay film And And I'm thinking that If you If you are a fan of The Help um, The Butler Films like that Then yeah, you know, I I think this will resonate with you for sure. Um and you will be able to see it Sunday the 21st at 2:30. That's at Embankment Garden Cinema. Or Sunday the 21st at 5:30 and this is at Odeon Tottenham Court Road. Um I have a feeling both of these could be sold out, but if you go to the film half an hour to an hour beforehand, there's a possibility of getting returns or some last minute tickets, okay? So yeah, that is The Hate you Give.
3: George and and when you learned that you could trust him and that the right film was gonna come out of your book?
1: Yeah, I honestly, I knew I could trust George from the very moment um, our phone call ended, Um, our first phone call. um, He talked to me about my characters as if he knew them and, and as if they were real people. And that's exactly what you want from a filmmaker, someone who understands them almost better than you do. So it was immediately, it was for me, I knew that he was the person to do this film. And I think that you all are going to see that I was absolutely right. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and George, I mean, the, the
3: film is kind of hugely topical, um, but it's also it's really incisive filmmaking. I wonder if you could talk a bit about like the initial creative decisions and any rules that you set yourself when you decided like how you were going to set up Star's Wars.
2: Yeah, when I first read the book, I was really taken by the two worlds that Angie <coughs> set up navigating between two worlds: the world's in the inner city community, and then her white private school that she attends in America. That's the, you know, that's what we call code switching, which is being two different people to compromise other people to make them feel comfortable. So you're kind of compromising yourself. So from a visual standpoint, point, I really wanted to show two different worlds. My first conversation with Madalas, she was experiencing that in her own life as well. So I just saw it as two different worlds, and two different techniques, and two different styles when she's in these two different worlds. And those styles are gonna converge together when you see her become a full individual when she gets to the end of her journey. So that was from what I was reading through the book, and that's pretty much our experience collectively.
3: Well, Amanda, um, Starr is just an extraordinary character, and I know that you read the book before it was published. Can you talk about um, yeah, why her journey meant so much to you? Uh, What meant so much to me when I read it was seeing the journey of this girl who is used to code switching and compartmentalizing herself go through the process after being galvanized by really traumatic events um, to become an activist and to stand in her intention and her truth and no longer make herself smaller just to appease other people. Uh, That spoke to me and inspired me. uh, And I also love how throughout the entire story, even though stars facing these events that are so tragic and are so challenging, she still moves through it with compassion, and she moves through it by maintaining her love for her family and her community and deciding to speak up for them and on their behalf. It's an extraordinary film, and we can't wait to show it, so um, please enjoy.
0: Well, that's it for, you know, nearly the whole festival We've got tomorrow, the last day And for sure you should be getting um, a review of Stan and Ollie And the new Coen Brothers film um, Other than that I don't know. We'll, we'll we'll see what happened. We'll try and fit something else in, but all depends. It's the last day, so you know, like things are probably going to be busy. Everyone trying to trying to see those last minute things, but you know, we'll see what we can do. But you'll definitely have two reviews to end out the sixty seventh London Film Festival. Okay, people. I'll catch you then.